listen to Downtown the Podcast. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hello and welcome. I'm Rich Kimball, joined by Carrie Haskell. And this is episode number 110. We're coming to you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. It's where we do our daily show downtown, Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear it on the Zone Radio stations of Maine, streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. And we've got two interesting conversations for you this week, Uh, one with actress Elizabeth Davis, the other with author Mitchell Nathanson, who's got uh, another in what's been a spate of awfully good baseball books of late. We'll get to uh, Mitch in the second half of the program, but we get things underway by listening to our conversation with actress Elizabeth Davis. She was nominated for a Tony Award as part of the original Broadway cast of Once, and uh, has worked in television as well, and film. Very talented actress and musician, and uh, we had a fun conversation talking with Elizabeth A. Davis. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's uh, let's start with the question we're asking everybody. How are you managing uh, quarantine and, and the world we're in right now? You know, um, I think that enormous gentleness and empathy with ourselves and with everyone around us virtually and and otherwise is is trying is, is the course of action that uh, I'm trying to take over here um, just uh, I'm a mother and balancing uh, that with the weight of uh, what the world is going through and uh, how we're hopefully changing for the better, but also grieving. Uh, it, it is an enormous thing. Um, and I, I have no words of wisdom. Um, and heaven knows that nobody really <laughs> needs to. Um, yeah, I, I, I certainly don't want to take focus when the focus does not need to be taken. Um, but I will continue to create things. Uh, hopefully that can be great salve and uh, hopefully um, lead us toward healing on the other side of us. Well, and one of the things you're working on is a brand new song. The song is called AEDG. Can can you tell the backstory of that, where the title comes from, what it means, and the sentiment behind this song? Absolutely. Uh, I wrote AEDG, uh, which is, by the way, the, the way that a violinist tunes the strings of their violin. Um, you start with the A, you go to the E, and then D and G. And uh, I, I wrote it um, as I was preparing to write a new musical. And I ended up, the, the, the piece journeys through a woman who does play the violin. It's uh, about my journey peripherally. Um, but there's a moment where this person has to sell their violin uh, metaphorically kind of give away their voice in order to continue and the, the death of giving away something that has been your voice and what that leads someone to say. Um, and so some of the lyrics, uh, what has happened to AEDG? What has happened to me when the world has made us mute? Um, I held you close and cried. I screamed, fought and tried um, but then into the chorus is saying, you've been there even when you weren't there. Uh, the melody of who you are echoes in the air. So I wrote that song quite a while ago. I, I would say the development of that show was about five years ago now. 
Um, and so I wrote this song for the musical. Um, but I also found in writing it that I was, in essence, also saying goodbye to another musical, mm. which was Once, which you heard um, you played before there. Um, the idea of what it means to kind of let go of one voice to find another voice. And and I do think that there is great echoes of what we're seeing and feeling as a nation right now of saying, you know, what has happened to us? And how do we let go in order to find the new song? That's very well that said. Is, yeah, that's what the song is about. And we shot a music video. And uh, the woman who is my director is a woman named Angelica Zolo. And uh, her parents were lead producers on one. And she kind of came to them and were like, hey, you guys should think about this. And so in essence, I credit her for kind of giving me the journey of once. And she said, I would love to direct a music video of this song. And so we have that coming out very soon. Um, we're also trying to be very cautious and wise about the right time to do that. But we hope when it enters the world, it can be a, a real healing journey. Once was such a phenomenon, and I was lucky enough to see it in the, I guess, the development stages down at ART in Cambridge. Oh, yes. Wow. That was the very beginning. Um, that's incredible. You know, I'm, I was at, I'm actually supposed to be in Cambridge right now uh, because I am headed back to ART with uh, the musical 1776. All right. right. And... Um, I'm playing Thomas Jefferson. So there you go. Who plays wow. the violin? So full circle. Well, they do such wonderful work. What Diane Paulus has created there. And for those of us in New England, it's such a wonderful opportunity to see shows, so many shows that will eventually make their way to the Broadway stage. I completely agree with you. I, I do think that they have done enormous, made enormous strides to, to being uh, as open to many voices, and I think that what Diane is doing with this show, um, she's giving 25 women Broadway contracts, and uh, 25 women as well as um, uh, tra uh, transgender and, and uh, people across the spectrum. And so she is a, a, a mouthpiece for, in my view, for justice and for what is is needed right now and uh so i i applaud her and the art and i look forward to being there whenever we're all able to be back in the theater shoulder to shoulder without masks well i look forward to seeing the show what a perfect time for us to be reminded of how this american experience began can i tell you it, it's really shocking the timeliness of it it was timely when she announced it but what has most struck me in the process the process that we have been able to have so far it's encouraging in that the creation of this country was fraught, difficult, at times violent, and there were a lot of people that were in bitter disagreement. And somehow we were still able to move forward. And yes, we are paying for the sins of our father, I do believe, but there is still enormous brilliance in the Declaration, and there is uh, enormous brilliance for us to draw from in this moment of saying there were people that had to fight and stay at the table in order to get something done that we still live by. We still say all men, people are created equal. 
all people have the right for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which Jefferson actually changed from what, uh, I, I can't remember if it was Thomas Paine, but someone, uh, it, it previously was known in the public psyche of life, liberty, and property. Right. And he changed that to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which I, um, I think is really beautiful for us right now um, at any time. But it's nice to be reminded that we need a living document. Um, uh, and we are alive, thank God, and we are breathing, and, and we get to interpret it as Americans, which just seems like a very trying thing to try to do right now, but we must. We're talking with Elizabeth A. Davis here on Downtown. One of my big influences in life was my high school speech teacher, and I understand your mom was a speech teacher. Oh, she was. Uh, she still is a speech teacher to me. <laughs> <laughs> she still will um, catch little things. And one of my favorite things about my mom is she uh, she made a quilt, uh, like a phonics quilt, but the, um, oh gosh, it's, I can't remember the word right now, but it um, in essence is like all of the vowel and consonant sounds and shapes and ways, phonetics. Oh yes, that's yes. That's the word. My mother made a phonetic quilt in college, and it's one of my favorite things about her. She just, she just loved, she loved words and the power of them. And of course, I um, credit her immensely and totally for, uh, I guess, my love of words and how they intertwine with music. When did you first know this is what you wanted to do? Well, I started playing the violin when I was three. And wow. isn't that interesting? My son turned three a week and a half ago, and we're talking about starting him on the classical guitar. And um, <clears throat> his choice, either the trumpet or the classical guitar. And I thought, oh, let's, let's go with the <laughs> guitar first. But um, I, guess it, I guess it is tied to the violin. I do say that's my first voice. But um, that combined with my parents were just, they worked in a tiny public school and they together directed the high school one act play hey that's what i do <laughs> what? yeah that's my that's my day job when i'm not on the radio isn't it it's you are an essential worker in my view and i don't mean any <laughs> i don't mean to use that hyperbolically or, or irreverently but i do believe that uh it is <clears throat> it is a role that shapes Young people, I mean, it's it's then or never, right? Right. Um, so thank you to you, and congratulations to you and your students for getting to have you as their teacher. Um, but that's what my parents did, and I watched them direct plays together from the time I was coherent, I guess three <laughs> or four, and uh, sitting on the steps of that stage and watching my mom help people create things. And... Uh, so, yeah, I think theater has always been woven in with community change and family and that it has a purpose greater than itself. And it's about the people inside of it as well. And, and so that's, I guess that's a very long way to answer your question, which is probably before I ever understood it, it, it was kind of clear cut for me. But I, um, my second year of college, I did announce officially, made my major officially, theater, and I got my graduate degree in theater as well. And 
you know, I love TV and I love film and I do that, but the form, the art form of theater is, uh, I think, well, we can describe it now in a way that perhaps we couldn't. People are longing to be together. People have been unable to be in the presence of another, to be in a theater and, and experience the visceral magic of what happens when we're all gathered to tell each other a story. And you, you just can't replace that. You can't. It's cellular in the theater. Absolutely. You know? Well, we all look forward to that day. Hopefully not too far down the road, we can have that special and magical experience of being at one in a live performance. Uh, Elizabeth, it's a real treat for us to talk with you. Uh, by the way, you can visit Elizabeth's website at elizabethdavis.com. We'll look forward to the video of AEDG and Hopefully I will be in the audience down at ART when 70, uh, 1776 gets underway. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. That's Elizabeth A. Davis talking about Once and uh, what sounds like a great upcoming production of 1776 down at American Repertory Theater in Cambridge. We'll take a break here, hear from our friends at Cross Insurance, and then come back and talk a little baseball with author Mitch Nathanson on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. one of my favorite versions of that song. Nice little uh, jazzy feel to a traditional, huh? Darn right. Let's talk a little baseball. Our next guest is the author of a number of books, including a wonderful biography of former Philadelphia Philly, Chicago White Sox, Richie, call me Dick Allen. He's got a brand new book out entitled Boughton, The Life of a Baseball Original, a fascinating look at the career and life of a former Yankee pitcher, sportscaster, inventor, and gadfly, Jim Bowden. Here's Mitchell Nathanson talking with Bruce Pratt and I on Downtown. What drew you to the story of, of the guy that they called the Bulldog? Uh, well, after I finished the, uh, the Dick Allen book, um, you know, he, Allen himself was such an iconoclast that uh, you know, I was thinking about what I was going to do next, and uh, you know, you have to amp it up. So who, you know, there's not too many places you can go from <laughs> Dick Allen, but I think Bowden might be the one place you can go from there. And this book also, along with being about Jim Bowden, it's also about an important era and change in sports writing in this country, led by Bowden's co-author, uh, Lenny Schechter, and the group known as the Chipmunks. Right, right. So, um, you know, Bowden was, was really their lodestar. They, these guys who came around in the late 50s and the early 60s who really transformed sports writing. And, you know, they, they you can't... You can't transform sports writing if you have nothing to write about, and these guys were just fascinated by Bowden. And so a lot of the, the early part of, the, of, of my book talks about how these guys were just drawn to Bowden because Bowden was just so open to them. And because he was so open, he gave them things to write about. Uh, and for people who were willing to write things that nobody was willing to write before, um, you know, that's great. So, you know, it's funny because he, he was the, the lodestar in the beginning, and then he became the guy who actually – turned writer himself and uh 
took that to a to a completely different level. Um, this is Bruce, Jim. I, I mean, uh, Mitch. I have one of the things about Bowden that I remember is it seemed when he arrived in New York, and that's where I was at the time in, in Greater New York. That that he, when he was interviewed. He really put pressure on Red Barber and Mel Allen and people like that because all they'd been doing before that was slapping Yogi and Whitey and Mickey on the butt and saying, good hustle. Um, how much of his personality in interviews do you think began to change things? Well, I mean, he was just somebody who, who I think that, uh, you know, a guy like, uh, like, like Mel Allen or Red Barber, I mean, they would sometimes get frustrated in that they had to fill some airspace and there was nobody willing to talk. Um, so it's great to have Mickey Mantle on, but when Mickey Mantle's not going to say anything other than the same things you've heard for the last three years, um, he's got nowhere to go from there. So you know, there's a, I, there's a few instances where you know Bouton really bailed those guys out because he was willing to give them information and and just be somebody who you'd actually want to listen to. I mean, he may not have been Mickey Mantle, but he was actually somebody who had something to say, and I think that I think they appreciated him really um, for the most part because he made their jobs easier. He was a long shot to make the Yankees, but then had the terrific 20-game winning season in 1963, pitched well in the postseason as well, and then uh, a holdout and a contract dispute. And and it seems that he was, was he personally stung by the way ownership uh, responded to him after the successful years he had had? Yeah, I think he thought that he was going to get treated like Whitey Ford. And, and um, I mean, he had a better year than Whitey Ford. And and so he thought that he was going to get paid. Maybe he wouldn't get paid more than Whitey Ford, but he was going to get a significant increase. And I think, I think it did stun him that, um, that even though he had a good year or, or a couple of good years, uh, you know, the management just didn't care. I mean, they had their salary structure. They weren't going to blow it or break it up just for Jim Bouton. And, and I think that that was a smack in the face to him that no matter what you do as a player – you're stuck in this system and you can't get out of it. And unless you're going to become a superstar that lasts for 15, 20 years, like a like a Whitey Ford or, or a Mantle, you're never going to reach a, a level where you're going to get paid commensurate with your abilities. And I think that was, a, was an eye-opener for him in many different ways. And he really gave his, literally gave his arm for the team, as you point out, over 520 innings over the course of those two seasons. Yeah, he really threw his arm out. And and not only did he throw that many innings, um, I mean, there were other pitchers who threw more innings back then. They threw a lot of innings. But he was used in starting uh, roles, and then he would come in relief. Um, so he didn't have any regular regularity of usage. So he couldn't even get into a routine. I mean, he mostly started, but then, you know, he would warm up sometimes. And that's one thing that people don't realize, that a lot of times these guys would warm up. They wouldn't get into a game, but they would warm up. And so... That just throws off your routine. You don't see that at all today. But back then, it wasn't that unusual for a guy who was not um, really a prized part of the team. Like, they wouldn't make Whitey Ford do that, but they would make Bouton do it. Uh, so, you know, that took its toll uh, on his arm uh, to the point where, like you said, by the end of uh, the uh, 64 season, he, he had really thrown it out. You point out in the book, um, and I think really well, because I remember this, when he went on TV, when Bouton left the game and became a broadcaster, he really changed New York <clears throat> television. I mean, he basically threw Cosell under a bus. He <clears throat> was, you know, said the Mets won, the Yankees lost. Let me tell you about what happened in Queens. Do you think his role as a broadcaster is underappreciated as much as his role as a writer is? Uh, 
Yeah, I think that, that, that people forget just how groundbreaking he was as a broadcaster. I spoke to Keith Olbermann, uh, you know, who, who really transformed SportsCenter in the 90s, and Olbermann told me that he was just basically just ripping off Boughton from the 70s. I mean, uh, Olbermann grew up in New York, and he saw Boughton as a kid doing those sportscasts uh, on Channel 7, and, and Olbermann said at that point, wow, look, you don't have to do it the way everybody does it. And so, you know, if you look at SportsCenter, you know, post Keith Oberman and Dan Patrick, it looks different. But the, Oberman and Patrick got it from Bouton, and so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that sportscasts were like in this little box where you just read the scores, and there was a, maybe a, a little human interest story, and that was it. Bouton turned that upside down completely, and uh, yeah, I don't think he gets one tenth of of the uh, of the respect that he that he really deserves for. Just how much he changed it. I mean, because in his wake, very quickly, everybody had a guy who was a reverend, who was funny, <laughs> who was trying to be a little different. They couldn't do it as well as Bouton could do it, but everybody was trying. We're talking with Mitch Nathanson about uh, Bouton, the life of a baseball the original. Uh, there had been baseball books before, ghostwritten by sports writers, but nothing approaching uh, what they would get from Jim Bunn. But as you point out, in many ways, the prede- predecessor to Ball 4 was a football book by Jerry Kramer, Instant Replay. Right. So, you know, the, the, the thing that surprised me the most was, you know, I, always, I knew Ball 4 was groundbreaking, and I had read it many, many years ago. But I had kind of always thought that it was the first of its kind in terms of format. And then I, when I was researching this, I realized, well, geez, there were a lot of books like that before that. And, and you know, Jim Brosnan, who was a pitcher for the Reds, mm. uh, he, he, he pioneered that. But by the, you're, like, you're right that by the mid to late 60s, you had this book by Jerry Kramer, Instant Replay, about the Packers. And that was really the predecessor to Ball 4 because it really, format-wise, is exactly like Ball 4. And even, even Instant Replay, if you go back and read it, there are some revelations in that book uh, that are surprising that you, I, I didn't expect when I read it um, about drug use and things like that. But they're pretty mild, and, and they kind of hint at things and don't really say them. Uh, but, you know, the thing that made Ball Four revelatory is it took that format and it just went all out. So whereas Jerry Kramer may have hinted about something, you know, Jim Bouton is presenting the evidence himself and, and, and all the documentation to prove it. And that's what really made it revolutionary. We know how the players responded. Commissioner Bowie Kuhn was unhappy, wanted Bouton to blame Lenny Schechter for writing the book. But I, I was especially fascinated with the way some of the old-time sports writers responded, in particular Dick Young, who seemed to clearly resent the fact that he was not the inside guy he claimed to be because he didn't play the game. Yeah, I think Dick Young uh, traded on this idea that he was he was your conduit to the to the mind of the ball player, and so when you read Dick Young's columns, you know that's what he was selling you. Um, you know, Jim Bouton scooped them really and, and and showed everybody that Dick Young was holding back, and and even if he wasn't holding back, Dick Young didn't have access to the type of information that Bouton had in his brain because not only could he write, he could pitch. And so, you know, that's that's going to give you a level of inside access that a guy like Dick Young could never get. And so Dick Young, who originally, you know, in the in the mid-60s when Bouton did, had his holdouts, Dick Young was a big supporter of Bouton because Bouton gave him information and access. But he really turned on him, like you said, when Ball 4 came out, because I think he felt that, hey, what's this ball player doing? He's treading on my territory now. And, and I think that a lot of the 
reaction from, from sports writers, the negative reaction. A lot of that had to do with the fact that they thought that this guy was starting to uh, impede on their territory, and they really resented it, and so they went after him as a result. How much of, of that also was the old jock mentality, what happens in the locker room, the hotel, the lobby, ever stays there? I mean, I mean, do you think there were a lot of people who just felt, well, Bowden's telling me a great story, but he shouldn't tell it? Yeah, I mean, I guess from the players' perspective, um, a lot of the, the funny thing about the writers was that they would say that, and, and, and they would write that in their columns, but they were doing that too. I mean, they were telling, they were giving you inside information. It wasn't as scandalous as what Bowden was doing, but they were, they were, they were scooping each other and giving out nuggets of information to their readers. So they weren't really following that rule either. You know, they just didn't like that somebody would go as far as Bowden did. Uh, as for the players, yeah, I think the players thought that anything that they did in the locker room was going to be protected, and they had an assumption that the players, the other fellow players, wouldn't rat them out, and, and certainly the writers wouldn't rat them out because if the writers ratted them out, they would lose their access. So I think they felt protected. Um, I, the, a lot of the players, when Ball 4 came out, claimed that but they didn't know Bouton was writing a book but when I was doing my research and I was talking to a bunch of players uh, on the pilots and the, and the Astros, it was pretty clear they all knew he was writing a book. They just didn't know that he was writing this kind of a book. Um, so when they say that they thought that uh, you know what they thought was uh, being uh, you know uh, just held in confidence, that's not really true. In that they knew that they're talking to a guy who's taking notes for a book because they could see him taking the notes. I thought it was very interesting, too. Obviously, the sensational parts of the book got all the attention and certainly drew 13-year-olds like me to it. But but as you point out, and I think it was uh, Jim Bouton's second wife, Paula, who said, really, this is, Ball 4 is a book about men's feelings. Yeah, it's it's underneath this veneer of humor and vulgar jokes and, and, and things like that. But it's, it's, it's really a book about men trying to come to grips with failure um, with their with, with their own inability to live up to their ideals or, or, or what people expect of them, perhaps. Um, and it's particularly true when you have a collection like the Pilots, the Seattle Pilots, who were an expansion team, and those guys were all rejects by definition. So it's not like um, these, he, Bouton took notes on the 64 Yankees, were, were, who were, you know, a pennant-winning team. He, he was talking about a team where everybody who showed up to spring training that year had already failed. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. And, and so a lot of the humor that comes through in Ball 4, it's funny, but it's also masking a lot of insecurity and jealousy and fear and all those sorts of things. And I think that's why Ball 4 resonates. I mean, this, the funny stuff was funny, um, and, and the shocking stuff isn't shocking anymore at all. Um, it's, the, it's the human story that resonates. And I think that's why Ball 4, even though we're in 2020, it's 50 years since it came out, that's why people still read it, because it's just it's a book that you can relate to if you're a man reading it. You, you can relate to these feelings even if you've never played Major League Baseball. And Jim Bouton was a guy who it seems never really fit in completely to the to the players. He was a writer to the writers. He was a player, and he was always struggling. It seemed to find his place. Yeah, I thought it was it was interesting. I wrote a little section on the Lions Head Bar in Greenwich Village, um, where 
uh, Lenny Schechter and a bunch of writers would hang out. And Bout the would the Bobo Newsom Memorial Society, right? Right, that's right. <laughs> the Bobo Newsom Memorial Society. Um, and a bunch of these writers would get together and they would just they would talk baseball and they had kind of a wry sense of humor and kind of a you know a, kind of a, a, a different view of of baseball. And so Bouton was part of that group. And the, the thing that the Lions said was that if you were a member of the regular crew and you had a book that would come out, they'd put the book jacket on the wall. Well, Ball Four comes out, they never put his book jacket mm. on the wall because they never thought of him as one of them. I mean, he was there all the time. But, and the other striking thing yeah. about the head, the Lions said, a place I will admit to have been many times, that uh, you had that mixture of the Makem and Clancy brothers, all the sort of Irish um, music guys, and all of the sports writers. With Pete Hamill used to hang out there. You'd see Frank McCourt there and stuff. That it seems to me that that that's sort of the world that Bouton really wanted to be in—a world of ideas. And that was a world of ideas. You didn't open your mouth at the head unless you thought you you could contribute. Do you think that 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 also is a big one of the big reasons ESPN is different than things used to be? Because of 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 what? Because of all that, that the mixture of ideas that were bouncing around a place like the Lions Head, because it wasn't just baseball. They'd be talking baseball, they'd be talking music, they'd be talking politics, they'd be collecting for the Widows and Orphans Fund in the north of Ireland. There was always so much activity going on at the Head that, that they, they were almost in, in a different world. They weren't just sports writers. They were guys who wrote about sports, but they were writers first. Yeah, and and like you said, you know, there there were sports writers who were there, but there were also, like you mentioned, Pete Hamill, Jimmy Breslin, uh, the Village Voice was right around the corner, and um, and so yeah, so you would get this different view, and I think that's why Ball Four is so literary because it's not just the the you know, the, the, the sports writers who got together and 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 bandied ideas about it. it, was people with a with a bigger perspective, and I that I I think that. That played a huge role in Ball Four, particularly considered that, considering that you know, Larry Ritter, who wrote The Glory of Their Times, was the founder of the Bobo Newsom Memorial mm-hmm. Society. And Fountain was a huge fan of that book, and he was a huge fan of the language in that book. And the, and the fact that the players spoke the, their own language, and that Ritter just let the players use their own language, didn't clean it up. And if you read Ball Four, you can see it's a direct descendant. Uh, of a book like uh, The Glory of Their Times. And all of that comes together at the head. And without the head, I don't know if all of that comes together. He had some hits and misses uh, after the broadcasting career as well. The, the TV show that was, was just dreadful because he ran smack into 70s network television, failed producers trying to keep doing the same old thing. His comeback was not overly successful. And it's, I find it interesting that Probably his biggest post-baseball success was the creation of Big League Chew. Yeah, I mean, that came about when he was in the bullpen with the Portland Mavericks. There's a really great documentary, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. I think it's a Netflix documentary, which is just really great. Um, and, you know, he he pitched for the Mavs with a guy named uh, Rob Nelson, uh, who was was the guy who had this idea for shredded bubble gum and that looked like chewing tobacco. And you know, Bouton didn't come up with the idea for Big League Chew, but he 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 believed in the idea. And once he believed in something, you know, his nickname was the Bulldog. So he would work like a bulldog to make it happen. And I don't think Big League Chew happens unless there's a Jim Bouton who's really pushing it, um, because he can see what this can become. And you know, Bouton was the one who put up all the money for this. 
because nobody else really had any money. I mean, they made the first batch of Big League Chew in the Bat Boy's kitchen. <laughs> so, you know, we're not talking about a big, you know, a big corporate enterprise here. And, and it was really Bouton's will to get himself in front of the people at Wrigley and other places who, uh, and sell it to, to them and sell, sell the idea to them, which is what made it so successful. By the time um, the uh, Wrigley ended up, or, or a subsidiary of Wrigley ended up buying it, and by the time the, the uh, Wrigley ended up uh, selling the Cubs, Big League Chew was bringing in more money every year than the Cubs were sold for. So, you know, <laughs> Big League Chew was bigger than the Chicago Cubs, at least as of 1981. What a sad irony, too, that uh, at the end of his life, uh, the guy who had been so engaging and, and so good with words had largely lost the ability to use words. Yeah, so he had a, he had a, uh, a degenerative brain disease that, kind of mimics Alzheimer's, but it's not Alzheimer's. And the, and the thing that makes it different from Alzheimer's is that, A, it's not a gradual decline, and B, I think the, the really tragic thing about it is that y- you're aware of what you're missing. Like mm. an Alzheimer's patient, um, it's awful for the people around that person, but the Alzheimer's patient generally doesn't know what they're missing. Um, but Bouton was always aware of it uh, up until the very end. I mean, he knew when I would talk to him, he would tell me, um, geez, you know, six months ago I could do this, I could do that. I can't, I can't remember it anymore. Um, which I think for a guy like that has just got to be hell. I mean, just the fact that you know how quick you were, and you know that you're not going to be anywhere near that quick ever again. Um, it was, it was something he struggled with for for a you know number of years. Uh, the fact that you know here's a guy who thinks he can overcome everything, and he always did. And then here was one thing that he's just not going to overcome. I mean, that's not easy to deal with. So Jim Bouton won 62 games, I believe, in his big league career, but had had an outsized impact on the game with, with ball four. How should he be remembered in the context of baseball history? I think he's a guy who tried in so many different ways to let people in on what it was like to be a big league ball player. Uh, and was more successful with that than anybody else. I mean, there were better, as you said, he won 62 games. He was not an all-time great pitcher. I mean, he was a mediocre pitcher. He had a couple of moments of glory. But even before ball four, he would try to relate to the fans. He wore a number, 56. That was the most relatable number if you're a fan. <laughs> you know, you're, you, know you, might, you might admire... Uh, Mickey Mantle, but you're never going to wear number seven for the Yankees. But you might think to yourself, geez, if I made the Yankees, I would probably be given number 56. <laughs> and I would probably look like Bouton on the mound with, you know, giving max effort on every pitch. Uh, and, and that was, you know, that was done on purpose. I mean, he had the chance to, you know, to, to trade that number in for a, a, a lower number. Uh, and he refused because he wanted to remind himself just how close to the street he was. And, People related to that, and then they related to a ball four. They related to the big league experience and big league chew, and all these other things I, I go through in the book. I mean, all of it had one unifying theme, and that was trying to bring people into that world and just to show them how much fun it could be, but also to show them what it was really like. I mean, the fun and the not so fun stuff. Well, it's a wonderful story and a terrific read as well. Uh, fascinating to learn even more than, than I I thought I knew the story of Jim Bouton, but I learned so much from Bouton, the life of a baseball original. Mitch, uh, thanks so much for your, your great work and research on this, and thanks for making time for us this afternoon. Well, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Mitch Nathanson, the new book, Terrific, Bouton, the life of 
of a baseball original. Thanks so much to Mitch for joining us to talk about the book. And, and you, we said it when he was on the air on the show that you forget about all the things Jim Bouton did, including that long run as not just a successful, but a groundbreaking sportscaster in New York city with guys like Keith Olbermann saying, that's, that's who I borrowed my style from is Cre- Jim Bouton created a whole new template for, for mm. the sportscasters to come. And then, you know, his biggest success financially, Big League Chew. <laughs> hey, is... I partook of a lot of that oh, in my yeah. in my baseball days. What a brilliant idea. A wonderful book about the life of a baseball original. Thanks to Mitchell Nathanson. Thanks also to actress Elizabeth A. Davis. And thanks to you for joining us here on Downtown, the podcast. See you next time.